You did it. You really did it. You found your way to the latest episode of the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Travis Lincoln Cox. I'm joined by Mr. Andrew Pish. Hello, listeners. And of course, Anatasha Blakely is here. Hello, listeners. We are interviewing the amazing Greg Hess today. What a joy to have this guy on the podcast. We've been fans of his from the very beginning. You might know him from the improv team Cook County Social Club. You might also know him from his work with the Improvised Shakespeare Company, where they improvise news stories by William Shakespeare himself. He's also the co-host of the smash hit podcast Mega a satirical improvised podcast about a fictional mega church. It's so funny. Check that out on all your podcasting apps. Also follow their page on Instagram, Mega the Podcast. Mm, and you can also follow Greg at Hey Greg Hess. This interview was everything we hoped and dreamed it would be. Uh, we talked about how Cook County has developed the skill of of recognizing pattern within the show and using that to help them almost like create a new form every night. We also talked about how it's good to intellectualize your art and think about process, but how you can't take that too far and how at a certain point, you just have to show up on stage and have fun. Yeah, and we did. At one point, we found ourselves kind of walking down a side street about artificial intelligence and the impact that it's gonna have on art and really all of our lives, and it's gonna get weird. This script was actually written by ChatGPT. <laughs> Maybe, you'll never know for sure, this entire podcast is artificial intelligence. I am a digital avatar. You can't prove that I've ever existed in real life. And Anatasha watches AI porn. It's no judgment, though. That's fine. If you, all, listener, are into AI porn, that's great. I th we think that's great. I have the proof. If you Venmo me $15, I will send you the proof. So without... <laughs> <laughs> so on that note, please enjoy our Artist Brain interview with Sir Gregory Hess. You're listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. up players yo yo yeah, what up let me see if i can make my brain work at 10 30 in the morning when i said 10 30 i was like yeah that'll be fine and right now i feel like i don't even know what improv is so we'll see <laughs> um pish are you learning to play the banjo don't don't ask oh about oh, oh, <laughs> oh my gosh what a great pish, what a great this is a great segue why don't you play that song that you wrote for him buddy would you please? my dad when i was like 12 i found this guitar in my closet that was my older brother's and so it, it strings were broken. And so we went to a guitar shop to get it restrung. While we were checking out, my dad turned to me out of nowhere. He had never said anything like this before. And he goes, if you ever want to learn how to play the banjo, <laughs> let me know. You're like, oh, and then, and then he didn't say anything about it for years until I was in college. <laughs> I was like 22, 23. And he goes, hey, Andrew, I was on eBay. And uh, I found a couple deals on a couple of banjos and I put down a couple of bids. And then he called me back like an hour later and he goes, 
So I won two banjos. Whoa. Yeah. And so he didn't know that he was like purchasing them. He thought he was bidding on them. And... <laughs> that What kind of banjo it, is that? Can you tell me? Uh, uh, it is. I can't even fucking tell you. It's a Fender. Uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, I yeah, know. It's a Fender I... five string. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so he got these and he was like, you can learn it and I can learn it. And he did not have the patience to learn a musical instrument for the first time <laughs> in his life. And so a couple of years ago, he gave me his banjo as well. So now I have two banjos that like at some point I will learn to play. But you have dueling banjos. <laughs> I don't have the time right now. Um, that's cool. That's a nice banjo, actually. And he. Yeah, it is. It's you really know, nice I play banjo. banjo. You do play banjo. I, I was going to say, you seem like you know a lot about the banjos. I have a working ability on the banjo. I, pl I like took lessons and stuff. Like in high school, I was a little bluegrass redneck kid. So I, I played in a bluegrass band and not banjo in the bluegrass band, but I really desperately wanted to learn banjo and I can play some five string banjo. Can you really? I can play like the basic shit. And then, yeah, yeah. my, my banjo is sitting in a storage unit right now. So it tells you how much I play it. Well, I have mine hung up on my wall with like the aspiration to play it and I haven't <laughs> touched it since I it looked it cool. up. Does that mean, Pish, does that mean that you have that there because you want to look okay. Like you want to look the part? I didn't hang that there because of the podcast. We record like once a month. I I, I hung it there for okay, okay, Jesus okay. Christ. Gotcha. Talk gotcha. about something else. Let's talk about AI. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on the show, Greg. We're gonna, just gonna pick apart everything that Pish has uh, on his. Yeah, let's right just now. like go through his room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's just. I mean, we basically already started, but now we're starting. <laughs> we're starting officially. Uh, I want to segue off our all this banjo talk to pick your brain more about like, because obviously you're an improviser. That's why you're here. But like, what you else? You want to pick my brain, Travis? I want to pick your brain, Gregory. Banjo style. You said not to get Does sexual. anyone call you Gregory? My mom. My, yes. My my mom calls me Gregory. I think I had, a, <laughs> I had an idea in my head at one point when I moved to LA. I was like, maybe I'll change it officially to Gregory Hess because it sounds it's it's like you know it's it's rhythmically the same as gregory peck um Ooh. and he did well in hollywood <laughs> <laughs> i want to call you sir gregory hess sir gregory hess that mm. I'll, I'll i'll respond to that and then i was like there was another greg hess i think in imdb and i was then then you know when you when you join the union you have to give all the options for your name so i think i put greg hess was my first choice i think i put I think I put GT. My middle name is is Todd, and it's so I put GT Hess as my second one, and then oh. as a bit, I I did G Toddy Haas as my third one, and because I put G Toddy Haas, a lot of people in my family call me G Toddy now, including my nieces who all call me G Toddy. <laughs> G Toddy, yeah, that's good. That's really G Toddy Haas. Such a good name and very cute from a niece yeah i love it yeah and they're all and they now they're just like hey g toddy and i'm like this is so funny that a bit for my sag card became a nickname that i guess i gave to myself is your family playful like did you yes. grow up in a playful home yes i would say that they were playful my mom is life of the party i think my mom's 68 she's the one that's like let's stay up and play a game and it'll be like 1 30 and everybody's like uh well let's go to bed <laughs> very <laughs> extroverted my dad is where i get my like weird sense of humor from he's not super extroverted but if high weirdness was to go down it would always be instigated by my dad and i think he's the reason that i like my dad's a little bit of a 
what's the word for it? He's just mischievous. And I think when it comes to maybe my my instincts on stage, I think it probably comes from that. My 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 need to perform is probably from my mom and then my ability to just want to fuck around is probably from my dad. That's great that you use that word because that is the number one word I use to describe you <laughs> in my mind and to other people oh, about your sense of play is that I'm like, oh, Greg is so mischievous. And if I'm being mischievous, I kind of feel like I got Greg Hess vibes. I do like making mischief on stage. It's a great way to approach an improv scene. I think I, I'm someone who a long time ago just really wanted scenes to be funny and fun and not take themselves too seriously, which I think there was a there were a bunch of years in improv where I think everyone thought that you had to do long two-person relationship scenes that sort of ended in a hug or a divorce. And there's that's fine, but I never really went to a comedy theater to want to go see that. And so I think my sense of poking at the scene, trying to cause mischief or reactions was always from my want to try to get a reaction out of my scene partner and the audience. You know what I mean? Yeah. How do you do that from like an organic place that doesn't feel like forced hack- track? Like oh, hacky. I don't. It's, forced. Yeah, yeah it's totally yeah. hacky. No. no, it's not though because I've seen people who are like trying to be funny on stage and it doesn't work. But, well, you, but then I watch Cook County and you guys mess with each other constantly and it does work. Yeah. So I'm not sure what the difference is. Well, the difference to me is just commitment to the character and to the reality that you're creating. So I think a lot of people mistake trying to mess with each other or get reactions or be mischievous or whatever we want to call it on stage as still breaking the reality of the character. But I think with Cook County, we try to do two things. One is, I mean, even last week we had a show and we just always say something like, don't forget to emotionally react. That's about the extent of our our reminders to ourselves. Our worst shows are when things happen and we we don't react to them and use them to the full extent of what they what they could give us. I mean, an example would be we I think we were three guys playing pinochle, playing cards. I think at one point I said something like, "Hey, can I can I be honest with you guys? I was going to like throw something in uh, it was about alien abduction and I think I was going to say something about how at one point I think I may have been may have been abducted by aliens, but before I even could get there, both Brendan and Mark were like, "No, oh God, no!" You know, just like <laughs> he's gonna start getting emotional with us, and even just that created a game of like, yeah, three guys playing pinochle. It's funny that two guys don't want to hear the other guy's feelings, and it really had nothing to do with the content of what I was about to say. It had everything to do with three guys trying to be guys hanging out, playing cards, but one, one guy starts to get emotional and it makes them super uncomfortable. So that's a good example of they're definitely messing with me because I'm essentially trying to offer a gift that I can't even get to. But inside of that is a really fun idea of, yeah, guys don't aren't able to talk about their feelings and they'll do anything they can to, to not. <laughs> And in that, we found a fun game, which was I, I, I kept trying to bring up this th- serious thing that had happened to me and they just wouldn't allow it to, to happen. Hmm. I feel like this makes a lot of sense because I often feel like Cook County and great improv, there's like two things going on. There's the show and then there's what's happening with the improvisers. And like the balance between those two things is really where like I get off and I'm like, ooh, I, I love that. But what you said about commitment to character is where I think younger teams go 
go a little askew is because instead of being committed to character, they're worried about what's going on with the improvisers at the expense of committing to the character. But you guys have such a high commitment to the reality of the show mm. that that it becomes really balanced and pleasing. Yeah, I, I think that for a long time I was worried about doing things correctly. Then I was worried about trying to be cool, <laughs> trying to create something new that wasn't being done. And then now I think I'm in a, a place, especially with those guys, where we just find each other really funny and we trust each other implicitly, I think, on stage. And all that stuff kind of falls away because then you just get to try to find the heat of whatever you're doing rather than I don't really worry about their feelings ever, <laughs> them as people. You know, I'm fully like just committing to the reality of the characters that we're playing at our best, I hope. Yeah, usually off stage, it's pretty rare when one of us is frustrated with with something another person did on stage. Pretty rare. Was it always like that or is that something that's No. <laughs> okay. I mean, <laughs> yeah, we had we had eras where like I think I had a few years where I was like we're too this or we're too that or you know, I wanted to like really mess with I mean, I think early on we made a stupid rule that was no tag outs. And then we got we would get like in big fights with each other. Like it was all transformation, no tag outs. Every scene bled into the next scene. We would just switch scenes on the fly. Yeah, we would have long, probably too serious discussions about whether tag outs should be. Uh, and Mark would be like, "I think we should tag if we want to." And it was just like, "No, we're not doing that, man." You know, and, it was, and so. Greg Hess has like a cigar in his mouth. Yeah, no, truly. that's not who we are. I remember Kevin Dorff actually told me a really funny story. If if you all know who Kevin Dorff is, and for the audience, mm -hmm. he's like a legendary improviser, wrote some of the best stuff at Second City and then, you know, went on to write for Conan for years. But he told me, I think he was on Blue Velveeta and there was another team called Jazz Freddy that were early IO teams in Chicago. And they actually got in a fist fight outside of IO about openings. And... That to me was simultaneously the funniest and the greatest thing of just like, I love how serious people take it at different points that that a bunch of improv people would actually come to blows over whether they were going to do an organic opening or not. There were love, multiple I times when I had to walk away from Anatasha when we first started. Multiple times. Definitely. Yeah. We all did the thing where we were like, we're going to talk after every show. We're going to talk about what went well and what we could maybe do differently. Yeah. And then we would spend like 10 seconds on what went well. And then we would get to what we can do differently. We eventually yeah. had to make a rule that was like, we can't talk we about the show. We don't talk after we shows. Don't talk, yeah. If we hang out after the show, we don't talk about the show. We can Other talk than to be like, hey, good job. That was fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I think it can, it can be easy to be hypercritical, especially early on. And then it, it's to the detriment of what I think is maybe the most important thing in an improv group is just ensemble. I was on a, a lot of improv teams where there were a bunch of just killer people <laughs> and it just didn't work by dint of who knows, maybe people going for their own jokes. Like maybe it was just the, the wrong styles clashing to me. It was always, Oh, the alchemical chemistry of whatever we figured out in cook County was, was the thing. That's something you can't really, coach it's not something you can note <laughs> you just you just know when it's on and you're going oh my god that was so fun how do we do that again this 
kind of leads me to something I was thinking about, which is like y'all have been performing for a while now. Yeah, some and... too long. <laughs> how long? How, how long has it been for people who don't know? Two thousand five was our first. Uh, let's see, two thousand five we started rehearsing, and I think we rehearsed for six months, and maybe our first show was two thousand six. We we had this uh, also very self aware pretentious rule that we were going to rehearse for six months before we did a show and not show and i think we rehearsed twice a week and didn't show any it was as if we were the manhattan project or whatever <laughs> we we're like and then we will show people what we've been working on um, i mean we we also were like we have to rehearse before we do a show but you know it's interesting because like there's something very silly about taking anything in life so seriously let alone improv but at the same time it does build like this sacred care between you and maybe that's part of the alchemy is just that everyone's like we're in agreement that we really care about this yeah we we had such a um a competitive streak in us too early on where we i, I think we really wanted to prove ourselves and i think that was something i think in the air when we were not not to the expense of other people but i think we really wanted to show that that we deserved a show and a slot at io i think we knew what we that we were on to something and then we wanted to come out of the gate swinging and that and it was great because i think by doing that by having that that need to prove ourselves early on it kind of got us into the mode of leaving it all on stage every night and you know, we ended up running at IO for seven years. I remember people kind of being jealous or mad that we got a show because we had just kind of finished classes. You know, we, we were still pretty young at the theater. and But I just remember it, we had that little chip on our shoulders of we, we can do this. We really want to make our show great. That kind of drove us, I think, in the early years of just the sense that we needed to prove ourselves. How often were y'all performing during those seven years? Once a week. Once a I, week? I mean, at least. Yeah, sometimes other places, but yeah, we sort of locked down Tuesday nights for six years. Yeah, so it was a long run. Wow. So over that time, and, and especially over the time since when y'all haven't been in Chicago, how have y'all still been performing at a high level? Like, how do you keep things fresh? Like, because I'm getting to the age now where like, you know, <laughs> just life shit happens, yeah. you know, and like stuff wears you down. I, I see a lot of people just stop improvising altogether. And yeah. to see the joy that y'all still perform with is really, I think, inspiring for me. Yeah, it's it's not linear, and I don't think it's easy all the time. I think before the pandemic, I would say that was probably our closest to us thinking, oh, maybe we hang it up or just not have a, a regular slot. Yeah, people's life stuff happens. People have kids. <laughs> People don't want to drive. I mean, I'm talking about Brendan, but just like, you know, it's 11 <laughs> o'clock or whatever and trying to get him to come from South Pasadena. It's an actual ask, you know, uh, on a school night or whatever. I don't know how we, I wouldn't necessarily say we're always focused on keeping it fresh. I do think after the pandemic, our first show back, it felt so fun. And I mean, honestly, the things that I miss most about doing shows it's like 50%, maybe even 60% green room. <laughs> I miss <laughs> doing bits in the green room as much as I miss being on stage because especially the way we've found that we like to play is whatever we're doing backstage ends up just bleeding right onto stage. And I think that was always a fun, we kind of roll onto stage with the same energy bits. I mean, sometimes like a bit that we would be talking about backstage would like show up in the show. 
I love that. I always thought that that was such a fun, a fun blurring of the line between our friendship and the, what we were doing on stage and the things that we're thinking and talking about. That was the stuff I missed the most. And so I think coming back to it, it was just a reminder of, oh, improv for me is a great exercise in life in terms of my relationships, what I'm thinking about, what I'm talking to those guys about, and then finding ways to express that in an artistic or comedic way, I think is, is what I think about keeping when I, I guess when I say keeping it fresh, that doesn't mean that we don't have shows where I'm like, uh, that felt like a bit we've done before, whatever. I try really hard now to push my, especially this many years in to be like, Oh, if this feels too familiar, how can I throw a wrench into it to make it feel or not a wrench or just knock it on its side in a way that makes it feel like something new. I like that a lot. I was talking with Travis, I think before our last show where I was thinking like, you know, cause there is something about like the engagement from the audience comes from like the improviser feeling almost a little like out of their depth and like not comfortable. I can totally see how trying to throw a wrench into what you're doing so that you don't get too predictable for yourself and oh, fall yeah. into just like this expected kind of thing. A tightrope walker, like nobody wants to watch the tightrope walker tight rope walker who's just like so comfortable on like this big board or whatever like it's the fact that they might fall at any second that makes that show exciting to watch i think improv's a lot like that i would even add to that it's the impression that they might fall i mean it's the same way with like a magic trick i i do think the tension built of a magician being like oh wait you had a you had a jack okay that's strange i mean i just saw this insane magician at a party do the, do a trick where he was like, this is a new one. I've never done this in a group, you know? And then of course was like, oh, you got a Jack. I'm so, okay, this is weird. And you're like, wait, did he actually mess up? <laughs> and then of course he didn't. It's like twice as good as you thought. I think taking care of the audience in a way that is, I always sort of think in early days, younger improvisers to the art of improv or whatever you want to call it, automatically make the audience nervous when they start to perform. And your whole time you're going, oh God, I hope they don't humiliate themselves. This is really awkward. You can tell they're scared. I think that's always something I try to teach people. You have to proceed as if this is as warm a bath as you've ever been in. And then if it starts to fall off the rails, like you have to delight in it falling off the rails and make sure that the audience is also delighting in it falling off the rails. It's like the person who can trip and laugh at themselves. So totally. you never, so you can laugh at them instead of being like pitying them. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're like, oh, they're fine. Like even yeah. if they trip, they're confident, they love themselves, they're okay. So much of it is just a setting expectation for the audience that you know what you're doing and that it's gonna be fine. And then if something happens that it's, out of the ordinary of a typical improv show that I think you're doubly one because a lot of people have seen improv shows where they leave and go, Oh, it's all right. You know, it was good. <laughs> it was improv. And I always kind of want people to leave the show being like, Oh my God, I've never seen anybody do something like that. You know, it's not obviously a hundred percent of the time, but I think I have the blessing of like having a couple of groups I perform with that sort of are always trying to elevate, elevate it so that it feels like, a highly comedic theatrical experience <laughs> rather than just like a bunch of people standing on a back line and sort of walking forward and trying to comedically process an idea, which it always never seemed that interesting to me. You do seem to be in two, like bet between Cook County and Improvised Shakespeare Company, two groups that are elevating the art form 
I know you said earlier, you're like, oh, always trying to do something new and maybe that's not your focus anymore. But I actually do feel like that's two groups that have pushed the art form forward for me. Yeah. I wonder if you attract that or if you're attracted to it. Oh, I'm definitely attracted to it. I think I, I do think it's a goal. I've been lucky to be a part of this, which is like, this is something that you could buy a ticket to and not feel like you wasted 15 bucks or in the case of Improvised Shakespeare, $35. Oh yeah. Like you paid that money. Like we need to deliver something that is like a theatrical show. I went to a show, uh, Improvised Shakespeare a couple months ago and everyone in my group left being like, when can we go back? Like we'll take our money. That was amazing. You know what I mean? Like you providing value. So I think it's amazing. Yeah. And I, I, you know, it it is, it is a thing because you have to train audiences to, I mean, we're in just an era of trying to train people to pay for what you make. It's a difficult thing because all of us are close enough in age that you, you basically came from an era where you thought you could just download things for free. You thought, you know, like everything was essentially free for a while. I mean, I'm guilty. I mean, as soon as Napster came out, I was like, yes, (laughs) finally, I can like rip off all the artists that I love. I think it is like a retraining of, of audience to be like, Hey, we're truly the, the bottom of what it, when it comes to the, the equity of the money that gets circulated for anything that people make it, it's the worst for the people making it. And that's across the board. And, and I can't think of an industry where it's not. I do think it's important for like improv or sketch or whatever or stand up. It's like do a great show so people don't feel like I'm bummed out that I had to pay 10 bucks for this show. Improv has kind of an amateur problem. There's an amateurism to improv that I think like and I love that people do it as a hobby. But if you are going to sort of try to do it as a thing that people buy a ticket for, I think there has to be another discussion of like we're not just showing up to like fuck around for 30 minutes and be like, ah, it's improv. Like I always kind of, I, I always hated that. Like, ah, it was fun. I, I, th- that always bothered me. It just seemed like no one was like pushing to be like, man, did we, did we deliver a kick-ass show? Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's such a hard problem too, because how do you set yourself apart, right? A lot of people do improv as a hobby, but even people who are serious about it, but maybe greener, want the feedback loop from being on stage and they have to get on stage at some point mm-hmm. in order to feel what works at every different level that they're at ever. So they need to do a show, but you are like, I'm putting on a show and I'm going to charge 35 bucks and I'm at that point. And how do you separate yourself, you know, in terms of marketing, but also is there a better way for people to be- become better without making improv have such a bad reputation while they're doing it. Know. You know, I've been thinking about this and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if there's a better way. I don't know if there is a better way. I mean, I, I benefited from doing 10 years at every sort of bar, small black box, weird, weird performance space that I could. But, you know, a lot of those shows were bad Nobody paid for them. Nobody was there thinking they were about to see the greatest thing. And then sometimes the greatest thing did happen and it felt you felt really lucky that you were sort of the, the fly on the wall for, for when it did. I guess my feeling is if you're, if you're performing, like y'all's show is a really well-executed, feels professional example of, hey, we're, we're putting on a show. It looks and feels like the same thing as if I went to a stand-up show or something like that. And it doesn't just feel like 
oh, maybe people will show up that we booked. You know, th- there's like that laissez-faire attitude of improv that I think sort of leached in and always kind of made it a clubhouse feeling, which is super fine, I think, as you're coming up. But then if you want to take your group or your show to the next level, like you have to be as serious about that offstage as you are on stage. I don't think you get as good as you guys get without doing a bunch of bad shows for five people. But then eventually like you you do get to the place where it's like no we are going to charge a ticket price we're we're better than everybody else and you should you should be able to to, to pay 10 15 20 bucks or whatever and it's such a fun like balancing act we were just talking about how you can't take it too seriously but then also like if you don't at least take it sort of seriously then what are we doing here <laughs> yeah so there's a, a balance of like take it really serious try really hard put on a great show but then also like just have fun i don't know it's interesting it's the the tenuous relationship between art and commerce has always bothered me i don't know i don't even know how to navigate it very well i don't i think most artists don't yeah taking yourself seriously and your business seriously while also trying to keep it spontaneous fun (laughs) something that you like to show up and do it's (laughs) it's really hard i mean there are times when all of the planning and all of that stuff can get so in the way of, hey, I just want to get out on stage and, and do something, you know? Um, so yeah, it's a difficult balance it, it, for sure. I think that's at every level. I, I think that's I think that's at every level of, of any kind of artistic pursuit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's like the best, most beautiful performances in very expensive films. It's like in the moment they have to be like, I have to forget all the pressure yeah. of what brought me to this moment and just enjoy what I'm in. It's a difficult juggling act i'm sure yeah can i I ask a oh yeah can i ask a stupid question i was studying a lot of buddhist stuff recently and there was one quote that stuck out to me it's like you can't get too intellectual about this because at the end of the day you have to remember that it's like to reduce your and other people's suffering that's that's what you're really going after Uh so don't overthink it too much and i was wondering what is that for comedy like don't get too intellectual about it instead make sure blank I would probably err on the side of of I do get too intellectual about it, and then when I do, it gets less fun. Um, I think that was also because I taught for so long, and as much as I liked teaching, I'm not sure if I'll teach again. (laughs) Maybe, maybe, big question mark for me, because I spent so much time analyzing how to, excuse me, break down what people are doing on stage and how to teach it block by block to get someone to a place where they feel comfortable doing it. I think that was good because I do think I, I, I know how it works and I do think I have some tricks and techniques that have helped people to get there, but I think it was at the expense of my own fun. I think when you over-intellectualize, I mean, if you think about it, comedy is all about surprise when you stop being surprised, that's when Holly and I laugh. Sometimes it's, it's, we'll be watching something that we know is funny and you're going like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I see how they did that. (laughs) And it's hard to get out of that, that analytical mind because you're, you're, you do the same thing and just get back to the place where like, can I just laugh at something or can I be surprised by something on stage? I feel like Nick Armstrong said to me recently that he likes watching very dramatic like horror, like he likes every other genre for that reason because he's like, oh yeah, comedy's how I spend my life. So I don't, I don't even want to watch it. I want to watch this other stuff because that's what's entertaining to me now. Yeah, 
I can't watch horror because I'm too scared. But um, yeah, I'm the same way. I I would say I watch a decent amount of comedy just to know what's out there. But if I'm gravitating towards something, I I just I probably wouldn't throw on like the latest half hour sitcom that's come out just because I don't really want to. Yeah, have to, like, like, that's go what I spent all day thinking about. Yeah, totally. At, at the expense of your fun, though. I do want to make you intellectualize a little bit. If yeah, that's okay. totally. Um, I we talked about how Cook County's show. At least this is what I remember from talking to you. So please tell me if I'm wrong. Between pattern and finding form birthed from the show, mm-hmm. could you just talk about those things a little bit and what they are and what that means for your team? Yeah. So sort of finding the form on the fly was always something that I think we had been interested in. And it kind of came out of, I'm not sure if the other guys would say this. I remember watching, there was a team called Foursquare at IO that was like really amazing. John Lutz, Dan Backedall, Peter Gross, and Rob Janis. I remember they would kind of, I don't think they had a form per se, but they would make cool internal moves in the show that just kind of felt like they had a language essentially between them in terms of the moves of the show. I remember Noah Gregoropoulos, rest in peace, kind of broke it down as there were three types of improv shows, like a conceit show, improvised Shakespeare, an improvised musical, etc. Then there are forms, the Herald, the Living Room, the this, the that. And then there are palette, what he called palette. And palette meaning like the team has an agreed upon like set of moves or language for the show, but we don't have an, if we're playing, if we were a band, like we know, like we've got a sax, a violin, I'm just naming Dave Matthews instruments, uh, a drummer <laughs> and, um, or whatever, and a tuba player. And then, uh, and we kind of know that those are the things that we make music with or paint with or whatever the analogy should be. And so I think we did glom onto that idea pretty hard because it felt like, oh, we have a certain, as we're in the show, we're deciding almost subconsciously like, oh, this is how the show moves. These are the move, these are the types of moves that we're making in the show to make the piece come together. An example I, I use a lot of times when I teach this is we did a show where it was, I think, two guys selling a car or something. And we realized like the edit pattern was if they walked around the car, the scene changed. It was always a scene, I think, around a car, but it became different characters. And then just heightening off that little move of like, okay, if you circle the car, the scene changes. Well, what happens if you go back around the car the other way? Oh, it goes back to the previous scene. Oh, okay, now we know that. That kind of became what you would consider like a palette move in the show, like the walk around the car edit or whatever you want to call that. So then to us, that that became like, oh, okay, what happens if we cl- climb through the car? Oh, two scenes crash together or what, what, whatever that ended up being, you, you in your mind are going, well, how do we now heighten the thing that we found? So that's not only a pattern, it's not only a move, but that's also a pattern, right? We're trying to heighten off of a pattern that we discovered early on, which was just this simple little thing of walking around the car and changing the scene. I think Cook County at our best was like really doing that in, in finding different ways of changing scenes, changing characters, making the show move into new places, breaking the fourth wall, doing meta moves. I mean, last week we did a show where Brendan, I kept changing characters and he just basically called out like, I'm only going to be this guy for this entire show. 
and then it all became it came down to us us begging him to play a new character at the end of the show and he just wouldn't do it he just couldn't do it and i then i think his like face got eaten off by an alien or something ridiculous but like even that our commitment to being like please man just play something different like it's so important right now because do you see what we're dealing with yeah we're sort of calling out the silliness of like playing multiple characters in a show but we're emotionally really latched on to this like please man you gotta do this you know you gotta play someone new mike or whatever that's like a fun little move within the show which is oh we'll call it the like meta character move which is one guy stuck in a character and now we're just going to try to force him into situations where we really hope that he could play another character but he never will that to me was where we really hit our stride with with formlessness, I guess you would call it, or finding the show kind of on the fly, it became a series of moves and a series of exploiting pattern to try to get us into what, like if you left the car show, you'd be like, oh my gosh, the car show. The, you know, if we were talking about it, we'd be like, oh yeah, the rule was this. And we, we you know, that's the car form. And then we would, for, you know, try something. Was that, next week. was that at Cage Match? Because I feel like it Jacob was a cage taught, match. like yeah. Jacob literally uses that show as an example oh, of really? that exact <laughs> thing. That the same one. He's always like, yeah, the car show. And he explained it to me exactly <laughs> as you just did. And oh. I'm like, wow. So it's very obvious as an audience member then as well. Yeah. And it's, and it's fun too, as an ensemble to find those things and then it, it becomes i feel like the improv tool belt is a oft overused um metaphor but it does become something that you don't need it to do a good improv show but it adds sort of a layer of it's sort of an impressive layer i think onto your show when you do have those types of game on game going on or games of the show or games of the piece sometimes we would call it and then just to the first part of your question like the pattern stuff really i think was born out of all of us knowing and loving like really classic comedy setups and pattern and all of us growing up. I mean, Cook County is like a great example of like all of us loved Naked Gun. All of us love, I mean, Naked Gun is a perfect example, right? Any of those Zucker Brother movies, which is like the stupidest thing taken totally seriously. You know, you can see like you watch those movies or you, I mean, Brendan and I, Mark, will talk about like Laurel and Hardy or Fatty Arbuckle or like old reel-to-reels that we would be like, dude, have you seen this pattern that they did? It's so fun because we realized like, oh, we were really good at those physical sort of patterny bits. And then we just were like, oh, we can improvise like that. That's like, uh, that's in our wheelhouse. So I think that that's kind of where our, our sense of, of repetition and pattern came from. Cool. Thank you. That was excellent. <laughs> There's like three improv nerds out there that are like, finally... Yeah, and they're sitting on this fatty Zoom arbuckle. Call I knew and- it. <laughs> <laughs> no, we had a you. We had a couple of sessions where you coached us, Storm Chaser, way back in the day. And I think you talked about this, like finding the pattern in the show, and it legitimately like it changed the way we play for the rest of time after that. It's really fun too because I think it gives the audience. I mean, it's almost we we always used to teach callbacks, and I think callbacks are actually a pretty. It's a writerly instinct i think a lot of times to be like oh how am i going to call this back you're like on the side thinking like how am i going to walk on with like so and so and there was something that i always felt that was a little bit difficult about that to teach and then i thought pattern was an easier way of thinking of it because it's like oh i i find myself back in the doorway from the first scene where where i got murdered 
even if no one comes in and murders me, maybe I'm maybe I kill myself. You know, like yeah, yeah. it's that stuff where it's like almost like emotional heat maps to the show where it's like, oh, this funny thing happened here. And just even going about it, like, how can I heighten that or, or repeat it again seemed easier to me than like standing on the wing and being like, I'm going to walk on as the doctor again. I hope it works in this scene there. I think it's just maybe a different way of like calling stuff back to I was very attracted to the idea of pattern and of palette. And we and I do feel like that's something that we were working on for a time. But I also feel like there was like there's like more to touch there for us in term like there's uh, there's more to learn there. And I'm wondering, I don't know, as a coach, like what how how do you work on it beyond explaining it? Yeah. Or even how do you how do you see that like for your own process? Where do you learn from nowadays, especially being not having a relationship with like an improv theater? Yeah. Or teachers, you know. I'm trying to do I'm I'm a little bit I will uh, to be totally honest I'm a little bit in a in a rut with what improv is to me at the moment and I think I'm trying to get myself back into beginner's mind with some of this stuff where I think for me it's I'm trying to do things that surprise myself and even if from it's like a character point of view or a physical thing not maybe being so macro with my like well what's the show and uh, you know all of that and really kind of kind of going back to basics which is how can I walk onto stage in ways tonight that I've that that truly like try to surprise myself and play points of view that I've that I've not really explored before because I think it's so easy to get safe when you're rewarded for the for the types of moves that you make and the characters that you play, then that that can get to the place where you're just like, it you default to those those things because people laugh. So I think I'm just trying to get back a little bit, even with like improvised Shakespeare is a good example. I mean, we just finished a run where we were doing eight shows a week. Whoa! It's really a process of being like okay, how do I make this fun and interesting for myself? I remember there's a, there's a, for people that are into process interviews, I mean, my great interest is listening to people talk about process. I don't know if that's anybody else, but there's a great interview with um, Andre 3000 and Rick Rubin on on his podcast. Y'all have- I've listened. listened. It's so good. And I also love, I'm, I'm obsessed with the process. That's why sometimes I'm like, I think I get a little in my head because- I almost like talking about the thing as much as doing it, which is sometimes a problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it, and it can be, or it could be a great thing, like you're probably a great teacher for that because you're really like trying to process it, process the process, as they say. Yeah, the in the interview with Andre 3000, I remember him saying, Outcast was at the top of their game. They were touring the world. It was the whole thing. And he was on stage rapping and thinking about what he was going to order back at the hotel for room service. <sighs> wow. And it's that thing. And I've been there. I mean, I've totally been there where I'm like, oh, man, I can't wait to like be done so that I can go eat a sandwich you know, or whatever. <laughs> and that's when I've and, and I've had a long talks with Holly about that of just being like, oh, does that mean I need to stop for a while? Does that mean I need to find something new about this that I really enjoy? And I think it's because I get bored when I think the show is something that I've been in before. And it, I think it's disingenuous uh, as an improv experiment, even with scripted stuff. You have to approach it like it's the first time you've ever said the line, right? And it's the first time you've ever heard the thing. And you have to do that on an improv too, which is like, you can't, 
cash out mid show because you're like, yeah, it's going pretty well. And you know, then this will happen and we'll probably get a light pole and then I'll go eat a sandwich, you know? (laughs) So I'm trying to get to the place again where I'm making choices for myself that feel exciting and risky and kind of scary. You know what I kind of think has helped me in a similar rut was picking up a new hobby. Oh, Because even when I came back to improv, I just felt that having beginner's mind in something else like kind of brought me back into my body. Oh, yeah. Even though it was like totally unrelated. I think that's great. Yeah, Natasha, you wrote down a question. If there's anything that's inspiring you nowadays or like anything you're reading or interested in that's in Anatasha's words, making your heart beat. <laughs> it is a very Anatasha phrase. What is making my heart beat? I think curiosity, I, I'm trying to really cultivate my curiosity, especially as I get older. I was listening to another cool podcast the other day. It was, it was on Duncan Trussell, and this guy's like an expert on aging. And he was basically saying like, the idea of getting old is like the number one problem with getting old is that people think they can't learn new things, can't do new things, physically can't do things. And there's this whole like set of science that shows like there's a cool study. They put a bunch of 80-year-olds in a monastery. Have you heard about this study? No. They put a bunch of 80-year-old men in a monastery. They decorated it like 1961. This was like in 1980-something and told them all like, you know, or so like it may have been the 90s. So they were basically like, you're 20. we want you to act and behave as if you were whatever age you were in 1961. And they kept them there for a week. It's like an astounding study. Like by the end of the week, they're like all out playing touch football. Like it was, it was true. Like they decorated it with the posters of the era. All of them were like their blood pressure went down. They were happier. They were like physically able to do different things. Then they repeated, they've repeated the study several times over the years to the same effect. It's like Your all mind, psychological. Yeah, totally. Like yeah. it's it, truly like aging is an idea, right? It's like, it, it's not actually the reality. And so I've been thinking about that a lot and I've I've picked up a lot of new things this year. Number one being writing country music. <laughs> <laughs> and, no way. Yeah. And it it put me right back in and I've ne- I don't think I've ever been more excited about doing something new and challenging than being a songwriter. It's been so fun. I've like met amazing people. Truly been back in beginner's brain. Like I played in bands and stuff in years and for like when I was in high school and college. And it was so fun to revisit this part of my life that I kind of just was like, ah, you know, hobbyist or whatever to just be like, no, man, I'm going to like go in and like hang out with my friend who's a amazing like Grammy award winning songwriter and learn how to write music. It's been the best. And so I do think that like that's something for me that's just been so silly in the best way. That's amazing. I know. I know. That is so I love that so much. I, I can't so remember who said this quote, but it was, I think it was an anthropologist maybe who's like, you, the goal is to die young as late as possible. Mm. And and I, I was like, I think that's my new life goal. I was like, totally. I just want to feel young and then put it off, die young. I think everybody kind of has an internal age that they stop at or that they most identify with. I think mine's 26. <laughs> like I really all, have always felt 26. Um, I think when I turned 26, I was like, yep, this is it. Like, this is the age I'm, I'm meant to be. And I've tried to kind of keep that because uh, even though I hopefully I'm not making some of the same mistakes I made at 26, I still feel like I'm capable and open enough to try new new things. And I'm I'm really trying to like just maintain that. I feel like mine's 30. What about 30, you guys? Yeah, interesting. 
30 because 30 was when I felt like I just gave myself permission to be the kid, but also to like take up more space yeah. in life. I love it. Yeah, I think I'd probably say like 32, 12. 33 oh. is, is because similarly, like that's the age where I feel like I felt like just comfortable with who I am and where I was and could sort of let go of like this crushing ambition of where I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was just saying though, my wife's out of town right now and when she's gone, it's 17 because I just <laughs> play video games and eat junk food. So <laughs> Pish is like 11. Uh, literally like 64. I'm going to be say, a Pish is like really good 64 year old. Wait, why, why is that? That's interesting. I have no fucking, I, it's probably because I idolized my grandpa and uh-huh. he was like, he was one of like the coolest guys I've ever known and yeah. just so nice and so like down to earth and grounded and world wise, like he grew up in like the great depression and like he went to school in like a farmhouse that had like all grades and like 12 students. Yes. Yes. You know? And so little house on the prairie style. Yeah. You are your grandpa. Yeah. You are yeah. your grandpa. Yeah, exactly. So once I get there, I, I just feel like, yeah, that's going to be, a great time for me. You just got to hang it. on until then. Yeah, exactly. You know what? Jet told me once that I was a 12-year-old boy, a 16-year-old girl, and a 64-year-old director <laughs> as a person. Oh, And I liked that. That is <laughs> good. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. As I drink from my Star Wars mug. <laughs> <laughs> you are George Lucas. Can we segue just a little bit, Greg? I don't... It's already been... I can't believe how fast time is flying, but I do want to talk a little bit about Mega... Can we start with where Gray came from? I mean, honestly, all credit goes to Holly in this regard. I will say that I was the catalyst to... She, she was trying to come up with a podcast, had pitched some podcasts, and they hadn't had really any bites. And I kept saying, like, you've got to do something about a megachurch because she had worked in a megachurch and has, like, such a deep knowledge of that world. And and I, I just know so many of the funny stories that, that happened there and from her upbringing and she was like no 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 I don't want to do it and then of course in some meeting brought it up like back pocket as the final thing and they of course were like that's it let's do it that's the so one. then she really spent the time to like world build it and figure out what it was and kind of base it on the the reality that she had come from the gray character who's an Australian youth pastor um, of a youth group called climax if people uh have any interest in knowing context is a character that i play and that was also a pitch that she made because she 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 had me on as the first guest and i was like well maybe i'm the youth pastor and she goes well you have to be australian and i was like i don't really do a very good australian accent she was like it doesn't matter (laughs) but every mega church has an like it's such a trope of the world because they import cool australians to be like youth pastors and stuff (laughs) And there had wow. been a there had been an Australian guy at the church that she worked at. Yeah, it was totally her thing, and I just dove into it, being like, "Okay, I'll give it a try." If you listen to those early episodes, I think I sound like I'm from South Africa, and then it like slowly migrates to New Zealand, and then kind of up to Australia. It's like a pan oceanic <laughs> accent. Then I kind of f- figured out a version of it that I think is close enough that even Australians will say it's pretty good, and then they'll say. Well, you that we would never say this, and I'm like, yeah, of course. The mega thing, like all all credit goes to Holly and in, in the the formation of that. The response to it has been totally different than we ever imagined. We really went into it thinking this is a po- is a comedy podcast for comedy nerds. It's on the regular that we'll get letters from people saying this has been such an important cathartic 
part of my deconstruction or my leaving the church or even just being like my relationship with my parents is really toxic because they believe one thing, I believe another thing. And just being able to like hear people joke about it is so helpful and disarms it. And I mean, that's to me the highest praise that we that we get. It feels to me like there's something resonant deep in the satire that that makes people be like, you know, if we can laugh at something, it really does disarm it and make it less scary. We have our own like issues and backgrounds with family and things. All of us do that. It's like whether it's politics or religion or the things that you're not supposed to talk about around the, around the Thanksgiving table. Right. That's been like the coolest part of it is that it kind of gave people a safe space to laugh about it and share it with their other friend who was in youth group with them. They got to be like, oh my God, can you believe they just did something about this? Or, you know, it's so that, that's been like the delight of it, I think. I love the phrase, if we can laugh at it, we disarm it. Yeah, right? That's so wonderful. Yeah, and it, it, takes, it takes some practice too because there are times when I'm like, I don't think we can go there. I'm like uncomfortable with it. And then we have to like sit and talk about like, well, what's behind that? And like, what am I afraid of? Or Holly, I think is sensitive in terms of people's like, I think we have a good lens on who is the target of this. We talk about that all the time, which is like, it's actually not really a podcast satirizing faith that much. It's really to me about satirizing the culture of American capitalist Christianity. And also people that don't read the book that they pretend to believe in with every single ounce of themselves. And so, you know, we, we talk about that a lot because I don't think we ever wanted to, you know, there, like there are aspects of religion and spirituality or whatever you want to call it that are super helpful to people and it helps them in their lives. That was never really the target of the show. Do you feel like you're at the place now in mega because you've been doing it for a while that you are in improv where you're like finding what's fresh about it or does it still feel new and exciting? Yeah, that's another one where we went through like a little slump. I feel like where we were like, God, like how do we how do we shake this up? And just in like the last four or five months, it's like hit a new stride again. Like I just wrote a mini series that like takes place within the world of Mega that's going to come out as its own sort of like pod within the pod. Um, That's a satirization of this. There was a big podcast last year called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill which was about this like meltdown of this mega church. You know, it sounds like a true crime podcast and it's got all the like scoring and stuff. Even that, like I, I, I've been working on that and, and it's just like, oh, there's a lot here that I don't get to do as my character. But in this regard, I'm, play- <laughs> I'm playing a food blogger who, who stumbles on a story about the lead pastor of, of the, in the podcast. <laughs> and then to try to get people to come to his food blog, tries to sort of chase down the story, but he's not very good at it. <laughs> And so it was just so fun to like write in a different voice and have p- people come in and improvise like based on like the story that I was writing. And yeah, so there is stuff now that I feel like, and actually Travis has been so helpful in terms of just like, even just like getting it out there in terms of clips on the internet. That's been super fun to to have people discover the podcast that way. Because I think when you make stuff, a lot of times you feel like you're just launching it into the void. There's just yeah. so much stuff, right? <laughs> To have anybody listen, to have anybody respond is like, to me, like that's the great relationship that you have as somebody who makes something with somebody who like gets to watch or listen to something. And to have that reciprocation is fantastic. And I think that's like what we continue to like get excited by. That reminds me of a discussion we had in college. One of my professors asked, true or false, art is for the consumer. 
And we had this big debate of like, no, the artist for the artist, it's self-fulfilling and they they just want to be create something. It's like, well, but if you just create it and send it into the void, is it really art? Like what's, yeah. it was just, so there is, I'm not, we don't have time to go down that road, but there is something undeniable about like part of what we do as performers depends on like audience feedback. A hundred percent. We do comedy, man. There's no comedy without a laugh. I... I have a hard time believing anybody doing comedy is happy if they if they're making something in in the vacuum. Um, like it just doesn't seem to me to be the purpose. <laughs> I think in this book, playing the audience, he says that he feels like you can make something and it's artistry, but it becomes art once the relationship to your audience happens. Like that connection's the last part. Yeah, that makes it. Ooh, I like that. Because dis- there's still a craft I, I like- you can make something for yourself yeah. but it's that's the last connection mm. yeah totally yeah you can make all the the furniture you want and sit on it and it's it's great but then they like if you make a chair for somebody else like that's a very different relationship mm-hmm. we're in an exciting time in terms of the cost of making things is just continuing to like track to zero <laughs> that's <laughs> bad in terms of getting paid for things i do think it's in terms of, of making things it, it's great there's like a weird trade-off mm-hmm. there for us to even do this podcast would would be so much harder two years ago than it is now and now look at us like we're like getting to talk about improv and stuff on a weekend it looks and sounds great and like then you get to plug it into the internet and like people can find it and listen to it anywhere that's kind of a miracle and i and i love it yeah it's like the capitalism portion of being like making money might be harder or different but now it's like oh i can make a movie if this was 20 years ago it would have been harder if it was 30 years ago and been cost so much money you know and maybe it's harder to get paid but it's really cool that you're like, I can kind of make whatever I want. Yeah. I I was like astounded. We, we did uh, shows in Poland like four years ago, I guess. It was before the pandemic, five years ago maybe. And I just remember being so blown away because I was like, so what do you guys do for like your jobs or whatever? And they were like, we do improv. And it was like, no, like, do you do TV? Or like, how do you like pay the bills? And they're like, we do improv. And it's like, <laughs> well, how? And it's like, well, the government gives us like an artist grant to like be doing improv. And it's like... <laughs> I would oh kill yeah. for gover- like government funded theater. Oh my yes. God. Oh, and, and, and then you don't and, have to and, be responsible for the audience. You can like, in, in the sense that here, theater is like, I got to do sound and music the 12th <laughs> time. You know, it's like, I got to yep. get butts in the seat. Instead, you're like, I'm going to do some experimental shit and push the totally. boundaries and we should all move. And that's such like a European idea of just like, like benefit it. Like, Art is like a cultural, there's cultural capital in art and we need to fund that is such a different idea than here. I'm, don't get me on my soapbox about this, but like we don't have a secretary of arts. <laughs> like it's like an $80 billion export or something. Like the, the United States makes more art and content and movies than anywhere else in the world. Yet we don't even like have representation in a presidential cabinet seat for all the people that are making just it. Let us like, starve. It far outshines like what yeah, it's crazy. Come on, Buddha judge. Let's get you in the art seat. Heck yeah. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it drives me crazy because like you'd go there and the, and it, it doesn't come without its problems. Like in Poland, like now there's like a far right wing government and I know that like there was like censorship going on. They would pull funding because they thought if like things were too critical and like there's definitely like a medium where it's like, oh yeah, like you don't want the government telling you what you can and can't do. 
I don't think that was happening at the improv theater where they got like a great government grant to like operate and pay their performers. Yeah, it's just not a value here. It's a value. It's a high value for people to consume. It's just not a high value for people to pay for or to support. And like that's a it's a crime. But, you know, the other thing that I love about like what we're talking about, even with the Internet, like Patreon and all that stuff, there is something really cool about that that I think is only going to get better, which is can I just be a more direct line? Like if you take out the middleman of all the places that are putting the stuff up or out, can you just connect people who are making cool stuff with the people who want to consume that cool stuff in some kind of beneficial quid pro quo? And I think that is getting easier. Well, it's like Hollywood was built by the mafia. So the idea of like an agent yeah. takes a cut, this person takes a cut, all the admin, you're like, it is, it's like yeah, being totally. in the mob. That's what we're thinking is normal and correct. Yes. Oh, is yes. insane. And that we, that, that a bunch of middlemen get to just like take cuts out of your thing for doing what is always my question. What exactly did you do? For, for gatekeeping right. and like keeping you away from the and person I think you that is changing and I think in a good way for the most part there's a cool theory called a thousand true fans and if you have a thousand true fans you can sort of like make a, a living as an artist and I think that's like only becoming more true being able to find the things in the communities and the niches and the things that you're interested in if you're making something for that community, like they're going to find it. So I'm glad we're finally talking about crypto. Crypto, is that what you said? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> blockchain solves it, bro. Bro yeah. Blockchain solves it. Um, we know. just got to come up with our own art coin. Impro <laughs> coin. Okay, so I've got this idea that I'm working on. It's called Pish Bucks. Pish Bucks. And <laughs> it's five separate cryptos. And there's I'm like... In. A fire pish buck, there's an air pish buck, there's a water pish buck, there's an earth pish, bu pish buck, and I'm then there's a heart pish it. buck. And each <laughs> one conveys special digital privileges on the owner. Like one person gets access to my phone and like they can call me 24 seven for advice. And then like another one, like, I don't know. I haven't thought it through too much, but. Yeah, what is the fire pish buck? I'm not sure. Andrew Bankman. Okay. Pish, freed. You're you're basically the guy that's going to take down the arts economy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if any of you listeners are interested in investing in Pishbuck, uh, you actually how it works is you Venmo me. Yeah, uh, Venmo me, and then we'll get you sorted with some Pishbucks. Just uh, hit the QR code there in the show notes, and mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, Venmo, send us Bitcoin to get your Pishbucks. That's right. Yeah. How has Patreon been for you? Like, what's that experience been like building that portion of it and having to kind of turn on the different side of your brain? Yeah, it's been amazing, honestly. And it's only talk about like something that is truly like you're learning. It's been great. I mean, it, it is just its own little community. When that email comes through of like, hey, somebody subscribed to your Patreon. It's like such a great feeling because you feel like, okay, We've made 200 plus episodes of this thing and someone finally was like, yeah, all right, I'm going to step up and pay five bucks a month or whatever for it. It feels great. I think Patreon is only like, I think those models are only going to get like Patreon's kind of, I mean, my problem with it is it's kind of clunky technology. Like it's not the best technology, but I think the, the idea behind it is, is really great. And I mean, sorry, Pish to um, tell you, but. I think there will be ways in like not the too distant future of just being like, oh yeah, like I can directly pay without the middleman of Patreon, my my favorite artist, and that probably will be blockchain, my man. I hate to tell you, the pitch box. It's a future, man. Are it's a, a good future. idea. 
Actually, of all the people I know, Pish is it's the a most pro blockchain person in my circle. We don't have yeah. to. We don't have to have that on air. Cut that out. <laughs> I'm so pro blockchain. Pish and I need to get together and talk crypto because I actually am very oh, yeah, fascinated wonderful. by a lot of that stuff. You two need to get together, talk crypto, talk AI. Talk crypto, talk, talk AI, talk about supplements that we're taking <laughs> to make our muscles huge, like gunt muscle balm or something. Muscle balm. Oh, not not that not that last one. Travis is the strongest person here. <laughs> <laughs> That's staying in. Well, the AI thing, I'm deep into the weeds because I, in the past week, I've been so into aliens and AI that I thought I was losing my mind because I went down like the <laughs> deepest, darkest rabbit holes on the internet. And then I had to kind of pull myself out of that and be like, okay, no aliens right now, but definitely this AI thing is a problem. (laughs) Um, It's a job killer in so many ways. And I'm, I do think, I mean, the WGA is about to strike. And like, one of the things about it is like not hiring AI, like not being able to like reappropriate content into an AI to just make spinoff shows that you didn't (laughs) license or come up with. And I it's think, so crazy yeah. because it all comes down to the fact that we are not provided for by our by the larger community. Yeah. So we're like, how are we? How am I going to provide for myself? And you're like, well, if we were all provided for and we felt like we were going to be taken care of, then who cares? Like people are making fan fiction. Nobody's mad at them for making fan fiction because they're not making money off of right. something that you need to provide for yourself. Yeah. And the way that we look at money. Yeah. If we were getting taken care of, then like, sure, let the robots do all the work. That sounds great. Or just like, I'm going to make my thing because it's fun for me and fun for my audience. And it's not going to take away from that. Yeah. I think that's half of it. I think the monetary sort of like universal basic income or whatever the like outcome of of this will be will be fascinating but i think the other part that we haven't reconciled with is the spiritual side what does it mean to have great expertise in something that then can be instantaneously replicated artificially yeah there's a great documentary about the go ai that google built to play the game go and I would highly recommend everyone watch it. There, you know, the game of Go is sort of a complicated, like it's a huge game in like Korea and other parts of the world, but it's, I'm saying like it's their chess, maybe it's like a bad analogy, but it took an AI versus the top Go player in the world. And it was amazing to watch this player who no one can beat essentially be like, I'm not worried about it. Like Go is so much about like logic, but it's also about like reading your opponent and all the small little details of someone who's across the board from you. I won't spoil, spoil it, but there are moments in this thing where you are shook because you're watching someone have the thing that they are ultimately the best at and took years and years to learn just stripped. Mm. And what does that mean? If you can just in the future say download, like I want to play Bach. Okay. I just download my Bach thing and i can play bach like what does that mean i think it's going to change the entire view of what what it is to make art and a lot of ai proponents would say like oh it's just going to be this like tool that we can use to make cooler art i am a little bit suspect of we've had a hundred thousand years of human development to then like in essentially 10 years 20 years 30 years jump into a computer i think it's going to be wild it's like (laughs) mental breakdown central but the thing is is well this this leads me to the question of what gives you worth and what gives you meaning yes does does it give you worth and meaning to contribute in that way or is it like you're finding your own meaning anyway 
And so you find meaning from the joy of getting better at something or like where does, yeah, like and how we put worth on ourselves being good at something. Uh huh. And you're just going to have to question it all. Yeah. I think it's going to be, we're going to feel very, it's going to feel schizophrenic, I think. It's going to, there's a great Terrence McKenna. I'm like a, I love that weird psychonaut shit. But he talks about how like, it's going to get weird, folks. It's going to get very weird. And you can already feel it. We're at the beginning of it. A third of the planet doesn't even have the internet. (laughs) Like, what are we talking about? We're like so in the very beginning of what, who knows what information age is. So I think it's going to be very, it's going to be feel very strange to be a human. Fish, you need to stop. You need to stop yelling at your Google. <laughs> oh, so voice. you need to. Stop I thank my at Chat GPT. I've used Chat GPT to write like parking ticket letters and things like that, and I'll be like, "Thanks so much. That was a great job." <laughs> <laughs> that my wife, my wife thanks Alexa for everything. She'll be like, "Turn on yeah. the lights," and then she will, and she'll be like, "Thank you." I've read enough science fiction in my life that you should just try to be polite to them because you know the outcome is they lock the airlock and you can't get out of the spaceship. That's right. So. Have you ever, has anybody played Detroit Become Human? No. Is this a video game? It's like a video, yeah, it's a video game about androids, but it really is amazing storytelling and really poses the question by making you play an android about being like, when when does the AI, when do you start to care about it the same way that you care about the human? Is there a point for you where you're like, now it's human? Yeah. And does it make you care less about some, somebody that you thought was human when you find out that they're an android? <laughs> like, do you suddenly not care? Are you like, oh, I still love them? It's really good. I, well, I think <laughs> it's just it's interesting because so much about technology is changing for us as artists, like improvising. We were improvising on Zoom for a while. That really, the technology isn't quite there yet. It doesn't feel like. But right. like when when like the conversation about like what does it mean to be a human? What is a human? When we're now so used to having digital avatars in a video game that are completely different from us, and being able to watch a YouTuber now have like a motion capture suit on and be a completely different character on the fly, just doing a freaking Twitch stream. Yeah, it's there are people uh, that have never improvised in. In IRL, as they say, there's a generation of improvisers who only know Zoom improv. Yeah, we just had Sean Landry on, and she talked about that, about how she yeah. did a whole range of classes, and people were, they didn't want to perform on stage. Yes. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. And to me, I guess I go back to that thing of, I mean, I never did a Zoom improv show. Again, like I was saying, the green room to the stage is to me like the, is like as important. And it's, if I can't feel that, I just didn't want to put it into 2D on on a screen. I just couldn't, couldn't wrap my head around it. It was very frustrating. We had fun and we learned a lot, but it was very frustrating to the muscle memory. After like the 30th time, no exaggeration. I remember having one where I was like, okay, I touched it a little i touched the joy (laughs) it took me fucking forever and then i was like oh and it was like a weird thing where i I almost feel like i had to i don't know how you two feel i almost feel like i had to brainwash myself to be so so much more attentive to the two of you and not where i was it was really called metaprogramming so you metaprogrammed i did well i guess we just have to have another pandemic i'll give it a try (laughs) (laughs) damn it uh (laughs) Let's try to tie this all together. 
We're talking about yeah, let's Travis. Put a bullet in this yeah, one. Travis. What's Travis the, what was the weird. point? What is the meaning of life? When we... No, no. I, I'm a, I, I have something. I have Pish something. Laugh. Pish is like a is is gone. Like, yeah, Pish laughs. Pish is like, Travis oh, is Travis like we got to bury this thing. Yeah. This will never come. We're out. talking about AI and like stuff getting weird and like what it means to be a human being. And I, I think there's something, you know, in the cult of improv and the philosophies of being a good improviser that translate into being a good human being as well that I think might be like really important and valuable for people, comedians or performers or not, just to like learn about being a good improviser. And I just want to know if you have any thoughts on that. I think improv makes people worse. I'm going to disagree. (laughs) Okay. And that's, Um, I guess that's a wrap. That's it. All right. Yeah. I think that's a, I think that's a really nice sentiment at the end of the day for me, it was always, being able to learn different ways of (laughs) to me the big life lesson was always like oh the thing that you're afraid of is almost always not as scary as as you thought it would be in terms of improv to put yourself in the position of failure of fear-based all the things in our dna like I'm going to look bad in front of people, like all our social skills, all our training, our evolution, our fear brain, to try to get into a place of flow state, of of letting things happen, you know, picking up your feet and drifting downstream. Like, I think that's the, that's the goal of life to me, because especially as like people die, people like all the bad, all the, all the hard things of being human happen. Like it's, it's all your reaction to them, right? Like they're going to happen. You know it. How you respond to them is essentially how you're going to navigate them either well or with difficulty. And so to me, there are like those little fun Zen things about improv that are don't hold on to it too hard. Like let it let it be what it is. Put yourself out there. You probably are going to be fine. You ate shit. It actually wasn't that big of a deal. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like all those fun things are great reminders about doing improv. And when I'm like hopefully doing my best work on stage there are like shards of that that like appear in in my life that help when there are like the true tragedies difficulties frustrations of like just trying to muddle through somehow it's like everything we said about cook county you're committed to the moment and then you're also willing to be like and it also doesn't matter it's okay i can let it go yeah Yeah. but it's not neither it's both it's both yeah trying trying to hold both those things is it's a fun and challenging balance. Have you ever read The Alchemist? I have. That Many years ago, yeah. but I need to probably reread it. I try to read it once a year, but there's a quote, my favorite quote from it. It reminds me of what you just said. That the main character is like afraid to like take the next step of his journey or whatever. And the, the wise, the wise leader person is leader person. I think that's what he's called. Yeah. Leader person. Mm-hmm. I think his name's Joe. But... Joe. That's right. Yeah. He just says, tell your heart that the fear of suffering is worse than the suffering itself. Mm. Once you actually go through the thing, it's not really, it's not usually that bad. It's the yeah. anxiety and the fear leading up to the thing that's what's really painful. Totally. Even in the last few years of having some anxious days with friends and loved ones, I can honestly say like the person who's going through it is always doing better than everybody around them that's like, freaking out about it (laughs) and it's such a good reminder to be like yeah it's it's our perception of the thing that's always like putting us in our our worst place the idea that i might fail like when i'm actually failing or like eating shit or like 
being laughed with or at or whatever it's like I'm okay. oh this i'm okay yeah it's fine yeah yeah like, you know i think so there's like inherently pain in life but it it is not necessarily a teacher unless you're trying to move through it with some grace and vulnerability and with intention because you can just be in pain and never learn a lesson ever i think there's like a lot of people that you see it and then you see the opposite which is i don't know trying to move through it with some grace i think yeah i I'm 100% into that. Well, Greg, from the uh, leader, what did you call the leader man? The leader? Wide, wide le leader person. Oh, the wise from leader man. the wise leader person of Storm Chaser, me. I just want to <laughs> <laughs> thank you. And also, um, we love you so much. And I truly am often like, you're, you're one of my favorite improvisers. So it was very nice to be able to talk shop with you. That's very kind. I love y'all and love that you are in pursuit of uh, trying to figure this whole thing out. Thanks, man. We got it. We got it. Nailed it. It was way better than Brendan's. Yeah, Brendan's so much better. Idiot. I actually, maybe we should take Brendan's down. Yeah, take it down. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I think we're going to do say a bunch of racist stuff. So I had to edit so much racist stuff. <laughs> Thank you for listening to another episode of the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show. You can find us on all of the socials. That's right. The social media programs. We're on Instagram and TikTok at Storm Chaser Improv. We've also got videos on YouTube. Just search for us at Storm Chaser Improv. We've got shows. We've also got clips from our podcast. And you can find all the other links that we have to get tickets to our shows and find other projects that we're working on at the link in our bio on Instagram. And of course, my friends, if you enjoyed this podcast, push all the buttons, share it, like it, subscribe to it. And if you're listening on iTunes, give us a little five-star review. That would be fantastic. This is my friend, Travis Lincoln Cox. This is my friend, Andrew Pish. And this is my friend, Anatasha Blakely. Thank you so much for listening. See y'all again soon. Thank you for listening to the Storm Chaser Improv Podcast Show.